Welcome to Victory Studios and Victory in Faith Now podcast, episode number nine. Well, this is Reverend Phil Hughes. We're back here in the Victory Studios with the new podcast program of Victory in Faith Now. And this is episode number nine. And it is entitled Myths and Legends. Kay's going to be with me, too, probably starting tomorrow. We have a brand new program that will be probably a two-parter. But for tonight, this is called Myths and Legends. We're going to be talking about such things as Dracula, the Spirit Meta, about the Holy Grail, Seven Gates of Hell in Pennsylvania, maybe things like Atlantis and a couple of others. Anyway, we're going to be getting started here in just a couple of minutes. We welcome you. Hope you enjoy this program as soon as we hear from our announcer. Thank you. Welcome to Victory and Faith Now with your hosts, Reverend Philip and Kay Hughes. This is a ministry podcast show where you'll hear teachings on how to expand your faith and build your authority in Christ regarding spiritual warfare. On occasion, there will be time for you, the listener, to call in live. Our show will include testimonials, special guests, and special guest hosts. Also, with programs that will teach you the uncompromising Word of God. So, if you're looking to obtain knowledge and rock-solid teachings regarding such subjects as the occult, witchcraft, the origin of evil spirits, angels and demons, generational curses, Satan, the Holy Spirit, the power of prayer, the blood covenant, healing, faith, authority, and much, much more, then welcome to Victory and Faith Now! You can also visit our website at www.victoryandfaithnow.org. And now, here's your hosts, Reverend Philip and wife Kay Hughes. Well, we're here in the Victory Studios. This is Reverend Hughes, and hey, listen, we have got a really interesting program, as you probably already heard from my first announcement. It is called Myths and Legends. And we are going to be talking about seven or eight different things that are either myths or they are legends. Some are biblically backed, and then some are just just that. They're a myth. And we're going to try and see if we can't give you some information on these particular individual myths. Some have to do with locations and places and people and spirits and demons and so on. Are you ready? We're ready, so let's get started. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to be talking about things like, and not necessarily in this order, the quest for the Holy Grail, seven gates of hell in Pennsylvania, the sorceress Medea, the goddess or spirit Astarte, uh, Atlantis, the description. We're going to have a evil spirit or ghost, a short glossary of ghosts that are involving locations in Malaysia. Nibus is a demon. This is a biblical demon as well. We'll give you some scripture for that one. And one other one that you may be interested in hearing as well. And that is, was the inspiration of Bram Stoker's The Dracula, did it come originally from 
Valad the Impaler. Also, since we're talking about Dracula and vampires, we'll give you a category of real-life vampires and how the Dracula phenomenon ended up going across the globe, such as the Bulgarian vampires, the Chinese vampires, the Czech vampires, German vampires, Greek vampires, and so on. We are getting ready to start, so let's see what info that we can give to you. Are they myth? Are they legend? Are they true? Are they false? Our first one is called Seven Gates of Hell in Pennsylvania. True or false? Myth or legend? According to local legend in the small town of Hallam, Pennsylvania, which the name means hell town, because there's a sulfur pit or a smell in the town uh, from the outskirts of the city, you'll find the seven gates of hell. If you pick up the weird Pennsylvania book, you can read more about this local legend. Legend has it, if you were to walk through each of these seven gates in order, you'd go straight to hell. But no one at this point has ever been known to do that. No one has ever passed the fifth gate. And to make things more difficult, gates two and seven are supposedly invisible during the daytime. Some say that they personally only ever seen or what claimed to be the first gate. But Hallam, or whatever they call the, the city, is known as Helltown, is a creepy place anyway. The others supposedly are hidden, or at least have been torn down. So the question is, why these gates? Well, according to legend, there was once a mental institution of some type off of the beaten path on Todd Road. The asylum was so out of the way that when building that supposedly when the building caught fire, it was difficult for the firefighters to get there quickly. During that time, several patients burned to death while others escaped. The patients that were known to be brutal are the majority of those that escaped. Rumor has it that when the search party went looking for the missing people, they found them and were beaten, even killed. Many of them were. That act of violence cursed the road. Did Todd Road and its asylum exist? Who knows? Modern maps show no such road. Though, some legends claim that Todd Road was just a nickname. So, think about it. Try and debunk the legend. What do they know? Hard to say. So, true or false? It's true. And false. There is a similar place in Pennsylvania by that name. But it is a legend. Some true, some false. Next. The second myth or legend, the sorceress Meta. Meta, in the 3rd century B.C., tells the story of Meta who fell in love with Jason, the leader of the Agronauts, and helped him obtain the, the Golden Fleece. She was known as a sorceress and was able to use her magic to fight a monster called Tolak, a bronze giant who tossed large rocks at them. And Tallus, the man of bronze, as he broke off rocks from a hard cliffside, he was of the stock of bronze, of the man sprung from ash tree, the last left among his kind, the son of the god Coronus, which was a Greek-type god. Now, 
and all of the rest of the body of his, his limbs, and he fashioned his bronze, and his ankles was a blood-red vein, and this, with its issues of life and death, was covered by a thin skin. Apparently this was something that came out around 1638, between 1638 and 1648. But this goddess Meta had decided to take on Tolus. For as long as he was not immortal, i.e. a god, her magic would be just as powerful as his, and she could win. Meta then proceeded to channel her hatred into a deadly whip and attack him from a distance to beat Tolus. She began to sing, currently to what we understand in legend, and she was able to invoke the death spirit, devourers of life, the swift hand of the Hades, who through hoovering through all of the air, swooped down on the living, kneeling in supplication. Supposedly three times she called on them with song and three times with prayer, and sharpening her soul, she became more mischievous, with her hostile glance, she bewitched the eyes of Tolus, the man of bronze, and her teeth gashed bitter wrath against him, and she sent forth phantoms in the frenzy of her rage. She calls out to Father Zeus, Surely great wonder rises in my mind, singing that desire, destruction, meets us not from disease and wounds alone. When Jason and Meta return to Pelus, the kingdom, Pelus refuses to honor his oath and give Jason the kingdom. This angers Meta, and she tricks Pelus and Pelus's daughters and tells them that if they were to boil their father in water that contained magical herbs, that he'd become younger again. But Meta gives the girls the wrong herbs, and they end up killing Pelus her father. This angers the people of Pella, who then drive Jason and Meta out of the land, and finally to Corinth. There, Meta bears two children. In the meantime, the king of Corinth decides to offer his daughter, Crusa, in marriage to Jason. He attempts much, and Jason accepts. This angers Meta. Hurt by Jason's betrayal, she vows to hurt him deeply. And as a wedding present, she uses her magic to kill Corin and Carissa. She then kills both of the Jason's children and flees to Athens. That's Greece. At the time she gets to Greece, she meets Agunus, who gives her sanctuary there and demands thereafter by that that the one action not content with just taking her in and protecting her he even enforced upon her into a contract of marriage with her. As the legend ends, or legend goes on, it also says that Jason, apparently looking for her for quite some time, there's never really a lot of history after that as to whether the legend went on as to whether he found her or not. Although, there is some additional information that around 5 B.C. to 65 B.C. composed another story about Meta in which she is presented as a witch with a number of demonic subordinates that she had under her. She is able to invoke various uh, deities 
to curse her enemies, betrayed by Jason, she vows to hurt him as deeply as she can. She can also make elaborate concoctions and magical potions that she can use against whoever she desires. A little bit of a story. True or false? It's false. It's a legend and probably some myth to it, but that's it. Number three. Okay, so number three is evil spirits and ghosts of Malaysia. So these are Malaysian ghosts or evil spirits that we're going to be speaking about next. So this is going to be a very short list of some of the Malaysian ghosts and brief descriptions of them. So first one is Pontenek, or another word is Kuntelanek. It's a type of vampire in Malaya, somewhere come up around in their folklore somehow. Another spirit is Manalandanganga. This is uh, the spirit of an older, beautiful woman capable of severing its upper half of its torso that can fly into the night with huge bat-type wings to prey on unexpecting pregnant women in their homes. Another evil spirit that they have is one called Toil, a mythical spirit in Malaysia, a mythology. It is a small creature created from a dead human fetus using black magic. Another one is called Orang Banan, said to inhabit jungles and are similar to elves, except that they're invisible to most people. Another one is called Orang Minki, interpreted oily man. According to history, Satan offered to grant worldly desires if the Orang Menke raped 21 women, they had to be virgins, within seven days, and then worshipped Satan as a god. The Orang Menke usually douses themselves with oil, thus where they get the name oily man, and run around naked, although the Orang Menke is believed to be a human. There are countless stories of them being related to the realm of the supernatural world. They are somewhat ape-like from Malaya Forest. Another one is called Manu Pezing, a Ma-Mari belief, a beautiful ghost that is supernaturally formed with the heart of the banana bud and is pierced with a nail attached to a thin thread. Okay, makes me want to go out and have a banana split. And we have one more. It's pronounced Mumi-I, Mumi-I, a poltergeist-type spirit who throws things around and attacks people who are especially lazy or criminal. True or false? Mostly false. Most of them are myth, but they are built on some legends as well. You have to remember that supernatural spiritual beings are real. And there's some over in Malaysia, just as there are here in the United States, or Germany, or Russia, or Hong Kong, or Africa. It really makes no difference where you are. Let's move on to the next one. Okay, you've heard of Atlantis, the city that basically sank into the sea. Well, this is a description. So we need to determine if there's some truth or false, if it's myth or legend. You know, there's a a ton of information circulating on what Atlantis actually was. 
what is it, an island or a, an actual piece of land that was attached to something that broke away, or exactly what was it? According to history, Atlantis was a great civilization that was destroyed in a massive, catastrophic, maybe sometime about 12,000 years ago, when the last great ice age ended. And the civilization of Egypt and Mesopotamia and Central America were supposedly of its offshoots. Atlantans were technologically advanced and could communicate telepathically and use the priorities of crystals to further the occultic knowledges. The myth of Atlantis was first described by Plato about 427 to 347 BC and was said that information from Egypt that an Egyptian priest informed said around 9570 I guess BC there was already a great civilization at Athens and that the present Greeks have already forgotten the society was ruled by warriors who loved the simple communion common type life they had no interest or desire for great wealth they had been able to defend the city against the island enemies therefore which that in itself tells us it had to have been an island which they laid waste behind the pillars by hercules and was ruled by a coalition of kings dedicated from the sea god poseidon and those chief kings was Poseidon's son, Atlas, and the Atlatanians were at one point almost godlike in their purity of heart, but they also became greedy and corrupt over a period of time. They ruled an empire stretching as far as central Italy in Europe to the borders of Egypt in Africa, but grew even greedier and sought to conquer the Athens but were defeated. So as the war ended, and over the course of a day and night, violent earthquakes and floods swept the island and destroyed it. So thus is somewhat the history of Atlantis. Believe it or not, true or false, pretty much false. It's a myth, and it hasn't had a lot of proof of any type other than that. Okay, let's move on to the next one. We have Astarete. She is a goddess or spirit. She was the Phoenician goddess of fertility and sexual love. Astarte is derived from Asherthron of 1 Kings 11.5 out of the Bible. The goddess of the Sedanites. The name is derived from the goddess Astarite, meaning shame. Her original name, Astaroth, meant womb, and she was associated with fertility. It is thought that she and the goddess Anta were the same deity in biblical time. In Egypt, Anta, or Astrite, were two separate deities. They were known along with the goddess Kodesh as the Lady of Heaven. Of three, Astrite seemed to be most popular. She was thought to have some relation to Seth and may have been the daughter of the sun god Ra from Egypt. She also seems to be the consort Moab, natural god called Chesmosh. Oftentimes, this is sometimes can get to be a mouthful. She is also associated with the Hebrew Asherah, the consort of Yahweh, not Yahweh, Yahweh. 
Other interpretations translate Astra as lady, similar to the Baal, which means Lord, a Babylonian title of hers is Quadesh, meaning harlot. She's got several names, but I guess the question is, is she true or false, myth or legend? Well, she's true, and yes, she's a legend, because number one, it is biblical. She's mentioned in the in the Bible at uh, 1 Kings 11.5. As a matter of fact, Solomon was quite intrigued by her. So, let's move on to the next one. Okay, number six. Quest for the Holy Grail, also known as the Cup of Jesus. Let's find out. Is it myth or is it legend? Many have talked about the Holy Grail. Supposedly, the Cup of Jesus and his disciples drank from at the Last Supper and alleges to give eternal life. Since the Middle Ages, it uh, began with the Gospels. Scripture reads it this way. And when he had taken up a cup and given thanks, he gave it to, to them, talking about the disciples, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. So, was this cup really a special cup used at the Last Supper, or was it just another ordinary Passover cup? More likely than not, it was not a jeweled cup with inlaid stones and made of gold or silver. But, in all likelihood, the cup itself was probably carved of wood or white chalk, a form of limestone that many first century cups were made from, rather than made of metal. And if so, it's unlikely that the cup would have survived through the centuries the way that metal or silver might have today. Regardless, by the Middle Ages, this cup, whether symbolic or actual, became quite popular. The term grail came from the French writer Christian de Troyes, who wrote a romantic poem called Perceval. The author died in 1190. Before finishing this piece, Okay, the knight visited the castle of the Fisher King, where he sees a strange procession in which he saw a gem-encrusted gold dish called a grail, and learned that it is the holy thing used to carry a communion wafer. In this procession, he also sees a boy carrying a lance that bleeds from the tip, possibly a reference to the lance that pierced Jesus' side on the cross according to John 19, verse 34, thus potentially relating this grail with an artifact of the Passion. Regardless, this unfinished story becomes faded with numerous authors who set out to finish it. Most medieval writers described it as some type of bowl or dish, either referring to the dish that Judas dipped his hand in or the cup which his disciples drank from, according to Matthew 26, verses 23 to 27. The word grail may be derived from the Latin word gredolis, which refers to a board or platter for serving meat. In a three-part poem, Joseph of Amaretha, one of Jesus' followers, received the cup from Pontius Pilate after the crucifixion. He then is imprisoned, but the risen Christ brings him the grail, and it sustains him for forty years in prison. When he is released, he constructs 
a grail table with thirteen seats to highly honor the Last Supper and then give the grail to his brother-in-law who carries it west. Later, Merlin conceals Arthur. We're talking about King Arthur here from Knights of the Round Table. Anyway, Arthur's father to construct the round table based on Joseph Grill table. So apparently the idea of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table came from this part of the myth. And Bourne's poem also used the grail to collect Jesus' blood when he was buried after the crucifixion. In history, though, there's been numerous bowls and chalices over the centuries that have come to be reported to be the Holy Grail. So, what we have to figure out is, is there truth or is it false? True, there was a cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper, but false, it was not the Holy Grail. Why do we know? Because, again, it wasn't something that they had so much made in that time period, such as a jeweled glass. Even though it may have been his last supper, Jesus was a rather simple man. and It would not have been like him to not draw any more attention to himself and riches of that type. Therefore, even being used, it was probably of its time and the time period that it was done, made of either stone or, like they say, a carved wood, much like a lot of the cups or bowls were made of that time period. True or false? A little bit of both. True, there was a cup that Jesus used. False, it really is not what we call the grail. Next, we come to number seven, and it is a demon by the name of Nabas. Now, Nabas is an obscure demon. The demon is in the high upper gallery of hell, but is regarded as a buffoon and a charlatan. He is said to manage visions and dreams. I've done a little research on him, but I've not been able to find a lot on him. Not anything, anyway, that bears his exact name. However, the name Nebus seems very similar to Nebahai or Nebaz, mentioned in Second Kings chapter 17, verse 31, and about Nebahaz, other than perhaps the Abarites that erected an image of him in Samaria, describes Nazareth idol as the figure of a dog. However, Christian theologians state that in versions of Second Kings chapter 31, the Jews seem often to have played with the names of the heathen god or gods in a spirit and Nebo becomes in one place, Nebus the Barker, to perhaps there is an association between Nebo and Nebaza. If he was known as Barker, he probably derived that word simply because they made him uh, as a figure of a dog. From understanding, a popular Babylonian New Year festival had Nebavon, Nebu traveling to Babylon to meet Marduk, and they were to settle the fate of the land for the upcoming year, with Nabu would then inscribe on his tablet one prayer found calls this a tablet of life, similar to the book of which God records the names of those who pleased him in Exodus 32, 33, and Psalm 69 and 139. The Hebrew Bible mentions this festival in Isaiah 46, verse 1, though here the gods are not worshipped but are associated with beast of burden. In Greek culture, Nabu was linked with Apollo and his astrological planet 
was Mercury, with Mediteans describing him as both a god of wisdom and writing and a false messiah. Was he true or false? Some say true. Mostly legend with some myth. Okay, number eight. This is the last one for the evening. Valid the Impaler, Bram Stoker's inspiration for Dracula. True or false? Was or was there not a real vampire, a real Dracula? If you've read any major books on vampires or demons or Dracula, or seen any movies about it or anything about Dracula, you've probably heard the name Valid Tapis or Valid the Impaler. Associated with him, there's a good chance that Bram Stoker, who wrote the book on Dracula, didn't know much about this Romanian hero. Bram Stoker's Dracula, published in 1993, wasn't the first vampire story published. And the vampire in literature trend that you read about started in a good 80-some years before. Valid, the Impaler, had quite a reputation as a vicious tyrant, madman who drank the blood of his enemies. Stoker probably chose the name Dracula due to Valid's surname because he thought it meant son of the devil. Actually, the name means son of the dragon because Valid's father was a member the knighthood order of the dragons. Well, close, but no cigar. But truthfully, vampires are still a reality in Romania. An incident from 2004 where a local family dug up the body of what they thought was a vampire. Listen to this. Six local men volunteered to enact a Romanian ritual for dealing with vampires. Just before midnight, they crept into the cemetery on the edge of the village and gathered around a tomb or grave. It seems that the destruction of a vampire has some parallels with the myth and some of the writings used by Stoker's heroes to destroy Dracula, such as the cross, the staking of a heart, you know, that type of thing, garlic, etc., but rather than drive a stake through the creature's heart, the six men dug Toma up, which I guess that was his name, split his rib cage with a pitchfork, removed his heart, put stakes through the rest of the body, and sprinkled it with garlic. Then they burned the heart, put the embers and the ashes of the heart into water, and shared the grim cocktail with the sick child. Okay, but let's face it. The vampire is no longer an undead corpse. Today's modern versions and so on of vampires who drinks and drains the blood of the living is no longer acts solely out of the primal needs to sustain its own life without regard of human life. Nowadays, vampires have a conscience to either drink human blood or not, to kill or only taste blood, and not necessarily just drink it. They have the power to take whatever they want, but also the power to restrain themselves out of the pity for their victims or humanity. Some even have a soul and can distinguish between good and evil. So it is no surprise that with this dramatic shift, vampires now play a symbolic role in modern culture and particularly with the gothic scene. Example, um, I'll discuss what people might mean when they describe themselves as real vampires or a vampirus. 
meaning the female, categories. Let me give you about three different examples. First, what they call a real vampire is, in description and an explanation today, you pretty much have three categories, which you discuss real vampires. The first are those that consider themselves psychic vampires. These type of vampires feed on other people's energy, whether that be paranormal, para-emotional, or sexual. Likewise, when someone is in a bad mood, that in turn affects everyone else. He or she is in contact with. You're absorbing that energy, that negative energy that they are putting out. Most likely, when people talk of being a vampire, they consider themselves to be of that type. Okay, second example. The second type are those that literally feed of others' blood. They usually have someone called a donor that they feed from. Mind you, they almost always know this person personally very well and are certain that they are disease-free. They may take use of the blood drinking more in an erotic manner because it's somewhat, I guess, sexually in some type of content. And thirdly, I'll give you the third reason that we find sometimes they call themselves vampires. Now, obviously, the third type are those that are not, obviously, of the first two types, but still associate with themselves as vampires to the point where they might imitate, uh, literally, vampire style of dress, or believe themselves to be light-sensitive, or other characteristics of vampires. Usually, they tend to be teens or college-age students, and are going through that coming-of-age questioning the, the meaning of life and their place in it. They may see the world basically as against them and long for dominating power of the vampire or to see a vampire drinking blood from the neck as highly erotic. They might also wish for immortality. After all, vampires are no longer human beings subject to the laws that govern humans. Creatures of the night that are driven by their own animal nature to feed off of their prey. So yes, in some ways, yeah, there are vampires or types of vampires. Let me tell you this. They've been known with history and folklore and legends and myths of vampires for multiple, multiple years. And it's not just in the United States. There are Bulgarian vampires, Chinese vampires, Czech vampires, German vampires, Greek vampires, Cuban vampires, Irish vampires. There's different types of, you know, spirits and vampires and one thing or another. Was Vald the Impaler Bram Stoker's inspiration for Dracula? Maybe. But Hollywood uses the movie to make money, let's face it, with Bela Lugosi as one of the first Draculas, as well as other monsters like the Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, and the Mummy, and so on. So bottom line, is Dracula true? Was he real? False? Is he not real? Well, for those of you who are those thrill-seeking monster moviegoers, the answer? False. He was just a myth. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. This is Reverend Hughes. We'll be right back.
We thank you for the time you've spent with us on this episode of Victory in Faith Now. Our desire is to honor God by promoting victory in your life, by teaching that all can be healed according to the word of faith. Also, by reaching out to the world, to all in need of Jesus Christ. Reverend Phil and Kay Hughes seek for you a deeper spiritual walk of faith, power, and authority for all who know Jesus is Lord, and salvation for all those who don't. May God's very best be yours. Now, a closing comment from your hosts, Reverend Phil and his wife, Kay Hughes. Well, we want to thank you for being here with us. And when I say us, I am including my wife, Kay, who is not in the studio with me, but um, may not be in the studio on the next episode either. But I also just wanted to let you know that we are putting together um, probably a two-part one that we're getting ready to do. Anyway, we hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Myths and Legends, Episode 9. Next episode, which will be Episode 10, is called Two Things the spirit of fear is afraid of. Sounds like a good one. Hopefully you'll enjoy that one as well. Anyway, don't forget to email us at phil.k at victoryinfaithnow.org. We'll get right back to you on that. Also, you can find us on iTunes. We'd like to have you subscribe and also give us a five-star rating there. You can listen to our website episodes right there on the website at www.victoryinfaithnow.org. Subscribe to us there. That way you can always get those. If you have an Android, you can get us on Podcast Republic, or you can go to iTunes, or you can go to YouTube, and you can subscribe to us on all of those as well. Well, we still are working on Stitcher. We haven't got everything done yet on our Facebook But we hope that when we do, you'll go in and like us there. Anyway, until next program, God bless you. And don't forget, keep the faith.